When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. WBUR Podcasts, Boston. Hey, Dean, do you remember those mnemonic devices? I think we all were taught uh, to remember the names of planets as a kid. So mine was my very excellent mother just served us nine pizzas. So can you give me the names of the planets then in that list? (laughs) All right. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and pizzas. Pizzas. Exactly. Whatever happened to pizzas? I I do mean Pluto. Pizzas got demoted. Uh, We lost an entire planet, this little underdog named Pluto, all because astronomers got together to decide what the word planet actually means. Uh, I would like to uh, open the uh, second session uh, and the closing ceremony of this. Well, what are we hearing? What happened? It's August 2006, and there's this big conference happening in Prague. Hundreds of uh, astronomers are gathering as part of this annual IAU meeting, International Astronomical Union. Now, typically, these things are, like, intellectually impenetrable, incredibly dull. Like, imagine a Zoom meeting with 400 other people. But this year, in 2006, they're voting on something big, the definition of the word planet. And that's all because of this one guy. So it was early morning, because this was midday in Prague. So I, I, I don't know, it was 4 or 5 in the morning. I got here in the dark. Mike Brown is this astronomer at Caltech. He wasn't at the conference, but he was live streaming the vote from California. And all the film crews were here ready to go because we nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody even knew at the time what the final resolution to be voted on was going to be. Whoa, whoa. Why were all those film crews following him? Yeah, Mike is surrounded by film crews because this is kind of his fault. And he has a lot riding on this vote. Two different definitions are being debated, and those definitions will determine whether or not Pluto is considered a planet. So Mike, wondering how this whole thing will go down, homes in on the vote's moderator. We have planets, the eight that are named. We have dwarf planets... 
<laughs> she had her props. She had some big inflatable planet thing, and then she had a big Pluto doll for Pluto and an umbrella. And she's like, all right, the question is... If Pluto gets the boot, it would instead be called a dwarf planet, which is different. Overnight, the number of planets in our solar system drops from nine to eight. Millions of textbooks will be suddenly out of date. Research funding will be harder to get if you're studying Pluto. And maybe most importantly, kids everywhere that have this inexplicable affinity for the solar system's tiniest planet, like me, will have to accept that their favorite runt was really just a fraud. I did not believe that astronomers would have the guts to demote Pluto. I I assumed that we had Pluto forever. It kind of sounds like Mike wanted Pluto to be demoted. Why? To Mike, Pluto was miscategorized. First of all, it's tiny, about the size of Russia. Secondly, its orbit is way out of whack with the other planets in the solar system. And then finally, and this ended up being one of the major points, compared to the other planets, Pluto is a lot more like its immediate neighbors, these icy planetoids that make up the Kuiper Belt. So what did all those other astronomers decide at that really tense and really nerdy meeting you were talking about? This thing unfolds in a way that you wouldn't really expect a science conference to unfold. It gets very unruly. People are shouting and the moderator finally gets up and and says, "Okay, everyone who doesn't want Pluto to be a planet, raise your yellow card now. And it's a sea of yellow. And when you saw all those hands, the journalists in the room all all just kind of, you know, you could hear that intake of breath. Pluto is dead. Okay, so there's one thing I don't really understand. How is this Mike's doing? Mike Brown was among all of the scientists debating whether or not Pluto is a planet. But the entire debate is actually happening because Mike Brown, one of those scientists, had been trying to find a new planet. And instead of making our solar system bigger, Mike's research shrunk it. What he uncovered made everyone question what it means to be a planet. And as I started to look into this, I realized that the story of Pluto and Mike and the planet Mike was searching for goes way, way back. It's a lot bigger than that. Because the planet Mike was hunting in one way or another, astronomers have been hunting for it for nearly 200 years. It's literally one of the largest unsolved mysteries in human history. And Mike still believes he's going to find it. He's obsessed. I think it's a little uh, Ahab-like. I... I'm going to go find this thing, and it it may kill me. (laughs) Welcome to Last Seen, a show about people, places, and things that have gone missing, and whether or not they can or even should be found. From WBUR, Boston's NPR station, I'm Nora Sachs. Today, producer Dean Russell brings us the story of two astronomers— separated by a century, who spend their lives obsessed and searching for something that may not even exist, the largest hidden object 
in the solar system. This is episode three, The Lost World. The commotion around Pluto and the search for a missing planet started a century before Mike was even born, in 1858, with a comet. His earliest recollection was when he was three years old, and a comet called Donati's Comet um, was visible from outside the window at the family home in Brookline. This is Kevin Schindler, a historian at the Lowell Observatory in Arizona. I called him to ask not about Mike Brown, but his planet-obsessed predecessor, Percival Lowell. Percival Lowell, who is without question one of the most famous planet hunters ever. He was brilliant. He was an articulate and vivacious speaker by all accounts. And it really captured the imagination of the general public. When Percival was a kid, he was obsessed with the stars. His mother gave him a two and a half inch telescope and he would spend hours comparing what he saw to the astronomy textbooks he collected. He was kind of a nerd. But he came from a serious family of American aristocrats. They owned cotton mills, which made a lot of money in the early half of the 19th century, in part because of slave labor. His father was one of the wealthiest men in Boston, who made extreme success a prerequisite for his children. He had one brother, Abbott, who was president of Harvard for 24 years. He had one sister who married a relative of Theodore Roosevelt. He had another sister, Amy, won the Pulitzer Prize. So wow. that's a pretty heady <laughs> family. <laughs> Percival's father didn't see him as an astronomer. He wanted him to take over the family business. So in 1876, after Percival went to Harvard... Because that's what you do. He started running a handful of mills. He lasted six years, couldn't stand the life of a proper Bostonian. So he quit. He traveled to Japan and Korea, writing travel logs about what to him seemed like other worlds. Then something happened that would turn his attention back to his childhood obsession, the night sky. Mars made a really close approach to Earth or an opposition. And then this Italian astronomer also detected these apparent linear features that he called canali. In 1877, Giovanni Schiaparelli discovered strange straight lines on the surface of Mars. These canali, he called them. And as he was getting ready to retire, Percival decided to pick up where Schiaparelli left off. Percival Lowell thought, you know, these canali are too straight to be natural. They must be of been made by some sort of intelligent life. And in fact, Lowell intentionally modified the term canali to canals, which implies artificial. He still wanted to impress his family, and he thought there was no better way to do that than by proving the existence of aliens. He was a brilliant mathematician. Um, he was self-taught in astronomy. But, you know, Percival wasn't a trained scientist. He never trained in an observatory. He didn't spend his 20s performing rigorous research. He was a dilettante. 
And he bought his way into astronomy, literally. He financed his own observatory in Arizona, commissioned a 32-foot telescope. After donating $10,000 to MIT, he pressured its president to give him a job as an astronomy professor. And it worked. These things gave him the credibility he needed to do and say what he wanted, without evidence. Science, in the ideal, perfect scenario, um, you know, collect data, and somewhere along the way, you come up with hypotheses and um, so on. But, you know, I think with Percival Lowell, it's probably backwards. Historians have uncovered some of Lowell's old journal entries, where he basically says that you need to make things true. Bold theory first, proof later. You know, it's just a, it's not the normal course of science. So he came along with sketchy data telling the public that he had seen Martian-made canals, and he drew pictures of what he saw as proof, and the public loved him. For them, he was this original Carl Sagan. But to astronomers, his peers, Percival was a threat to their credibility and the credibility of the field. The scientific community, pretty much, the consensus was, this isn't right. Percival was wrong about intelligent aliens living on Mars because those canals, they were just artifacts from the telescope viewfinder. Percival never accepted this, but he did notice that he'd become this laughingstock by some accounts. So he put Mars on the back burner. When he started seeing that um, he was losing steam with that, you know, he started picking up a search for another planet. And I think it was, again, that desire to make a big discovery. He thought the only way to recover his legacy was to pursue a new idea, to find a planet, what he called Planet X. It was perfect, really, because the astronomers who discover planets are remembered forever. Mike Brown's entree into the planetary search party started in the 1970s in Alabama. Huntsville was this amazing place because basically everybody in town was there in some sense because of of rockets. It was the the Apollo program, the, the Saturn V's were being built there and it was just a normal part of growing up. You grow up and everybody works on going to the moon and You're sitting in your room one morning and the whole place shakes. Mike's dad built rockets, but Mike didn't want to do that. The first thing I remember about a planet, really, is the Viking lander on Mars in in 1976. Viking 1 and Viking 2 were readied for their separate journeys to Mars. And it was the first color photograph that ever appeared on my hometown newspaper front page. Just this this full spread of this, you know, kind of, these days we would look at it and think it looks pretty bleak. It looks a little bit like Death Valley, um, just rubble strewn everywhere. And that was, I think, the moment that uh, suddenly planets um, caught my attention instead of just just the moon. Why do you think that was? Because it, it was real. I, I've always had a hard time 
being excited about sort of abstract stuff or even just like little dots in the sky that I didn't, I, I was not some, you know, a kid who went off and memorized all the constellations or could even point out where the planets were. Um, but once things became real, I, I became enthralled. Mike went to school for astronomy. He dug into the solar system. But in the early 90s, there was this feeling that we'd pretty much learned all that we could about the solar system, at least all of the big stuff. Astronomers just didn't talk about the possibility of another planet. It was like talking about Atlantis. You'd become a joke. And then in 1992, suddenly this tiny little object beyond Neptune in the vicinity of Pluto was found. And by the end of 1992, I can't remember the number, but there were probably two or three. By the end of the next year, there might have been a dozen. Telescopes and technology improved. Astronomers started conducting comprehensive searches of the night sky and began discovering what they called trans-Neptunian objects, icy planetoids past Neptune that made up this donut-shaped band of debris that scientists named the Kuiper Belt. The solar system, it seemed, still had some secrets left. And Mike, he had a hunch. I thought there was a pretty good chance that somewhere just beyond the Kuiper Belt, there would be something like a planet. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what I meant by that at the time. But I meant something maybe the size of the Earth and maybe 20% further away than Neptune is what I kind of thought there might be a good chance that there would be out there. In 1999, Mike was 34 years old. He was sitting in a big domed observatory on a mountaintop near San Diego. It was night and fog rolled in, meaning the telescope was out of commission. He and a friend had nothing to do but talk and wait. Mike's dad had just died, so this friend was trying to keep things light. She asked him if he was excited about any upcoming work, and Mike just kind of blurted it out. I think there's another planet past Pluto. He had no evidence, but they made a bet on it. Yeah, you sound crazy. You sound like you're going to go find a planet great. Um, But, you know, that's what friends are for. I wouldn't have made a bet with the public about this, (laughs) but... But it's okay to, to, to make a bet with a friend. Yeah. You wouldn't have pulled a Percival Lowell or anything like that? Told the world that you were <laughs> going to find something? Yeah, no. no I, well, not until now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> his mission was now clear, but his method wasn't. How do you find a planet? The answer, in a minute. A lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. After about a year of searching, by 1907, Percival Lowell had only discovered one thing, an asteroid. But his search for the ninth planet 
was sporadic. He had a history of nervous breakdowns. He stopped and started. He kept the hunt a secret for almost a decade. And eventually he reluctantly accepted that to find a planet, he needed to do the boring work that scientists do. He needed clear, replicable evidence of a ninth planet. But the amount of space to scan with a telescope was unimaginably large. He had to use something called orbital dynamics. Most people think, uh, of course, you know, we learned that uh, planets move around the sun in elliptical orbits. Uh, but that's not the whole story. That's the tip of the iceberg. Renu Malhotra studies this stuff. I'm a researcher, a professor at the University of Arizona. I study orbital dynamics and planetary dynamics. Every piece of matter floating out there in space, all the rocks and planets and stars, they have mass and thus gravity. This means as they float around, they're all pushing and pulling. Not only the gravity between the sun and a planet individually, but the gravity between every planet with every other planet. Think about it like this. Every time a bigger planet passes a nearby smaller planet, the gravity from the big guy gives the little guy a kick. That can cause the little guy to shake and veer slightly off course. There's a word for that, aberrance, but... It gets really complicated. Like, what happens when one or two planets are aberrant for no clear reason? Percival thought a mysterious third object with a lot of gravity was pooling on Uranus and maybe Neptune. He thought that there must be another large planet beyond. And Percival thought he could reverse engineer this, so to speak, and predict the location of the unknown giant. Again, Kevin Schindler. Um, he started doing some calculations, you know, based on the movement of these bodies. Where is this unknown body? How big is it to cause these movements? Percival was working with a team of human computers, mathematicians. And as the computers were getting closer to what Percival Lowell thought was an accurate final answer, he would have his observers focus in that area of the sky. Eventually, the computers figured it out. They thought. Percival put together a memoir of all their work using orbital dynamics, it predicted that Planet X would be around seven times the mass of Earth, hanging out somewhere in the constellation Gemini. After years of keeping this stuff under wraps, he decided to go public. He planned this big talk in Cambridge, Mass., January 1915. He was anxious because he knew his scientific peers would be judging him. He had calculations, but no picture. And like a person who can't stop checking their email, Percival couldn't stop checking in with his staff right up to the event. Like, did you get the picture yet? What about now? He would write telegrams to the staff with messages such as, don't be nervous about, you know, writing me of the discovery of the new planet. Uh, you know, if it's late at night, at night, don't worry about waking me up with a telegram. Or, you know, that sort of thing. It's not clear what happened at this talk. But he didn't make a huge splash. Newspapers at the time reported on a gallery Percival set up at the Boston Public Library, showing images of the planets. The reporters rehashed the Mars Canal debate. But in all of the archives that I could find, they didn't say anything about Planet X. 
And the next year, Percival died. And that was kind of the end of the, of the search for a while. How did he die? He had a stroke. And he was mm. only 61. And he was, you know, Percival was a, I would say, a, you know, high strung probably in, in some ways. Um, an intense personality. After, after he passed away, his brother, um, president of Harvard, Abbott Lawrence Lowell, he later wrote a biography about Percival Lowell. And he said that Percival's greatest disappointment in life was not finding Planet X. In 1930, 14 years after Percival's death, another astronomer used his calculations like a treasure map. And he found a planet. People thought it had to be Percival's planet X, but it was too small. Because after all of that number crunching, it turned out that his data were flawed. Uranus and Neptune weren't aberrant. The fact that the calculations led to anything was just a fluke. What that astronomer found was Pluto. Percival is considered one of the discoverers. So why did Pluto get demoted? It was January 2005, and at this point, Mike Brown had discovered a handful of interesting trans-Neptunian objects, all a fraction of the size of Pluto, all hanging out in the Kuiper Belt. But in 2005, the computer program Mike was using to scan the sky wasn't working like he wanted it. So he rewrote it, and as soon as he ran it, he struck gold. It was brighter than anything else I'd seen. And it was moving more slowly than anything else I'd ever seen. And, you know, moving slowly means it's far away. Being bright means it's big. Moving slowly and being bright means it's really, really big. It was about the same size as Pluto, maybe bigger. And it was living in the same general area as Pluto. And I just sat there and stared. Um... For a minute, and then I picked up the phone and called my wife and said, I think I just found a planet. What he found, he nicknamed Xena, the X in Xena, a nod to Percival's Planet X. Mike was excited to have discovered a tenth planet, but he also started to worry. If Xena was labeled a planet, what will happen when we find the next Pluto sized planet? Mike was pretty sure there were more, potentially hundreds in the Kuiper Belt, just like Pluto. So Mike thought maybe these tiny rocks shouldn't be called planets at all. There are too many. And universally speaking, they're not that significant. Which is a pretty weird thought because Mike had finally discovered a planet. And now he was choosing principles over ambition. In the end, Mike didn't have to choose because at that tense live-streamed conference in 2006, the IAU chose for him. Words were parsed, definitions made, and on the same day that Pluto got the boot from the Planet Club, so did Xena. They were unplaneted. Then it's clear that Resolution 5B is not passed. I don't feel remorse... Because I guess I don't feel like anything bad has happened to Pluto. I think Pluto has helped us to re-understand how the outer solar system put itself together, and we are now classifying it correctly. I mean, the real thing to think about is, 
it was never a planet. We just misunderstood it at first and misclassified it. After the meeting, the solar system went back down to eight planets. And Mike stopped searching. He said he wanted to try something new for a change. But that didn't last long. An unseen planet, about ten times more massive than Earth, is lurking in the outer reaches of our solar system. That is the bold claim made today by two astronomers at Caltech. In 2012, Mike and a few other astronomers started to notice aberrations in the solar system. Some of the dwarf planets they had previously found are moving in strange orbits that can't be explained. They're floating way out there, past the Kuiper Belt, at the edge of the solar system. And their orbits all appear clustered and oddly angled and really elongated. It looks like something is tugging on them. But what? Mike and a colleague, Constantine Batikin, built a simulation of the solar system. They started plugging in ideas, solutions. Maybe it was an ancient star that drifted by and warped their orbits. Maybe it's galactic tides. Maybe their data are wrong. Finally, they plug in their last idea. And as soon as that happened, we were like, oh, 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 I mean, there's, oh, there's a planet out there. (laughs) Like, it was like, oh, my God, there's actually a planet out there. It was a missing planet. That's what they said. And after they published their idea, the public went crazy. But some of their peers were skeptical. Something has perturbed the outer solar system. Is it a large planet? I don't think that evidence is that strong. Renu Malhotra was actually really into the idea to begin with. But as time passed, Renu, like others, started to notice problems with the data. Without getting too technical, Mike is basing his theory on a dozen or so objects. They may look clustered because of observational biases. It's a statistics of small numbers. I voiced this criticism from Renu and others to Mike. She's wrong. <laughs> I mean, we, have, we didn't brush past any of that. We spent forever figuring this out correctly, and no one else, as far as I can tell, has, has done the entire data set like we have. It's not that we're saying that, you know, we are the 35th and 36th people to say that there's a planet out there and everybody before us was wrong, and you, but you should believe us instead. It's just actually true. The technology and computing power today is leagues better than the days of Percival Lowell. And Mike has a solid track record. He's discovered dozens of minor planets. So their situations, Percival's and Mike's, they are different. But at the simplest level, they're also not. Both Percival and Mike saw something odd about the solar system and came to the same conclusion. Mike, however, pushes back on this idea. There is no Planet X. Um, Planet X does not exist. He and Constantine won't call their predicted planet Planet X. Instead, they call it Planet 9. They don't want to liken themselves to Percival, but honestly, it's kind of hard not to. Since announcing their hypothesis in 2016, the duo have been refining their calculations. And today, they think their planet is about six times the size of Earth, floating somewhere near the constellation Gemini. Sound familiar? In in a lot of ways, you are very, very different than Percival Lowell, obviously. But, you know, it can't be helped to compare 
part of the story to Percival Lowell, and I'm curious about how you feel about that. It's funny. I don't. I don't think about. I guess I don't really even. Th- Yeah, so Percival Lowell was obsessed with finding Planet X. Could we be the same way? I, you know, I just don't, I don't see it. I just don't see the, I just don't see the parallels because I know why they were wrong. They were wrong because they they weren't careful about their data. It, it led them astray and just don't think that's going to happen. What, what if you're wrong? I'm, you know, I'm all in. I I am still I, then I will be the person who was a total idiot and thought there was a planet when there wasn't just like the 200 idiots before me who did it but I'm I don't I just don't see that happening although none of them did either so <laughs> Lurking behind all of this is a question a great question about obsession without a clear answer Finding a planet brings fame and book deals, but Mike already has those things. He says he searches because he knows it's there. End of story. And if it's not there, so be it. And as I put this story together, I've thought a lot about why we search, even when our chances are slim. If it's a missing person or a missing cat or a missing feeling or a missing planet, many of us search become obsessed because it's hard to imagine the alternative. There's something very human about that optimism. Deeply flawed, maybe. Not always as skeptical as the great halls of science might demand, but very human. We have to believe in something, in making the unright right in achieving a whole-form universe, however you define universe. This is part of our essential nature as humans, is, is to explore and to understand what's around us. And there is a huge part of our solar system that we knew nothing about um, just a few short years ago that is itching to be explored. And I, I, I think that is compelling to anyone who you talk to that's why this idea of a of a planet resonates with the with the public so much it's this new exploration and i i feel as if you know if we stop exploring we we might as well stop being human and this is this is just what we keep doing I think back to something Percival Lowell wrote when he first announced the result of his calculations of Planet X. I imagine him writing in the Arizona daylight after a sleepless night of searching, something he often did. And it's funny because he does something he didn't often do. He admitted that he could be wrong. But to that idea, he essentially says, so what? The work he and his staff have done, right or wrong, is meaningful. A thorough analysis of the problem is just as valuable as the solution. For that too, means advance. Coming up next week, a story about a pair of bold leaders and their hope for a new African nation that disappeared from our collective memory. 
not only could the future have been different, but it was on the path of being different. And we basically thwarted that path. This week's episode of Last Scene was reported and written by Dean Russell. Big thanks to Constantine Batigan, Mike Brown, Samantha Lawler, Renu Malhotra, Richard Pogi, Nina Sankovic, Overt Schilling, Kevin Schindler, Caltech, and the Lowell Observatory for all of their time and wisdom. Our episode was produced by Dean and myself, Nora Sachs, your host and curator of this season. Nick White is our story editor for this series. Mix, sound design, and original music by Paul Vikas. Production help from my WBUR podcast teammates, Amory Sievertson, Matt Reed, Quincy Walters, and Kristen Torres. Fact-checking by Mira Rahman. Ben Brock Johnson is our executive producer. If you want to know more about this story, go to our website, wbur.org slash last scene, where we've compiled a lengthy reading list, including David Strauss's biography of Percival Lowell and Shannon Sterone's incredible piece in Long Reads, The Hunt for Planet Nine. You can also check out Mike Brown's memoir, How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. Poor Pluto. Follow us on Twitter at Last Scene Podcast and pitch us your story ideas about people, places, and things that have gone missing by dropping us a line at lastseenwbur at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.